somewhere in the, in the last couple of parts of this talk, and um, and certainly in a lot more detail uh, before that elsewhere in other talks and writings and courses, uh, we've explained how a practitioner might sort of cotton on at some point, hear about or uh, realize um, a little bit, uh, cotton on to this idea of fabrication, the fabrication of dukkha, the fabrication of the self-sense or of some perception of issue or whatever. And then might, might get interested um, uh, in, in seeing, having seen... Uh, that things are fabricated through the way of relating, through the way of looking, might get interested in these two concepts, two related concepts, fabrication and ways of looking, and might decide to keep open that question, well, I can see this is fabricated, for instance, like the Pancha, what else is fabricated, or what is not fabricated, and might just pursue that question with the tool of ways of looking and developing um, the skill, skills and arts involved in different ways of looking with different uh, degrees, depths, subtleties and kinds of clinging involved and pursue this this um, double question of fabrication and ways of looking in practice in practice, not just as some kind of abstract intellectual idea a practitioner might get hold of this and uh, kind of run with it in practice, and that's what I've referred to elsewhere as uh, what I call the phenomenological approach. Um, in other words, dealing, meeting one's experience, and just bringing these uh, concepts to bear, fabrication and ways of looking, and seeing uh, what uh, we can learn about experience, um, about fabrication of experience and ways of looking through exploring them, through playing and experimenting with that. And again, elsewhere in uh, quite a lot of detail, and uh, just briefly in somewhere in the last uh, couple of parts of this talk, we we said that if a person does that, if a practitioner does that in practice, explores fabrication and ways of looking, this this question, this probing of fabrication with ways of looking, um, then um, uh, a possible trajectory. Uh, will kind of um, almost inevitably arise out of that a trajectory of we could say uh, developing insights that can we could conceive of as forming a kind of central strand for um, a notion of awakening or one of the notions of awakening I'm sort of uh, or part of the notion of awakening I'm sort of um, offering as a possibility. Uh, part of a notion, a direction that unfolds, and we said, uh, and, and so there'll be this, uh, you know, deepening, if you like, developing of insight. So, including the insight into um, uh, the fabrication of the personality and and the perspective of not identifying with one's personality at times, and then we want ran through um, a brief list. So, for example, one would um, experience and 
understand the perspective that the self is just a process of the psychophysical aggregates. One will move beyond that in time, eventually, with the, with the ripening of things into views of experiences and views of um, universal oneness and the self being part of that oneness and all things being part of different uh, onenesses at different levels, if you like, of love, of awareness, of nothingness, of all kinds of things. Um, and pursuing this kind of uh, non-fabricating direction even more, one will eventually open to the unfabricated, the deathless, and understand with that the thorough and complete and radical emptiness of all dharmas, all phenomena without exception. And then uh, realizing, based on that, that all self, any and all self-views uh, should not be clung to, cannot cannot really be clung to um, as any kind of final position at least because because one knows the emptiness of all phenomena, all the elements that might possibly uh, make up or be a foundation for any self. Um, and then eventually one sees that fabrication itself is empty, as I said, and, and that uh, kind of relativizes, if you like, the whole uh, sense of the unfabricated, so that there's uh, a non-duality uh, and a, a non-elevation of the unfabricated over the fabricated, um, the beyond over this world, so to speak, and the holiness is then everywhere. And pursuing it even more, uh, one begins to open up to the realization that all conceptual frameworks, conceptions and conceptual frameworks are, in a, in a sense, empty and they're not finally true. They don't um, uh, reflect or summarize uh, or articulate a final truth, an ultimate viewpoint on how a thing is, how the things are, uh, etc., um, and through that, actually, an even deeper sense of um, participation in the cosmos, participation in uh, in perception, participation also in truth, and even in the notion of what awakening is. So we we kind of um, roughly outlined all that, and we also said that in that kind of uh, possible trajectory, uh, perhaps makes you know is is uh, a, a good, pretty good solution, or one pretty good solution to the kind of pieces of, of the jigsaw that we find in, in the Pali Canon, fitting Buddha saying this and the Buddha saying that, and how does it all fit together? Um, together with uh, some Mahayana, uh, some elaborations of what the Buddha said that, that are found in Mahayana texts. Um, that, that go back to the Pali Canon, but that the Buddha didn't really um, pick up on and elaborate there. So, for instance, in the Kachayana Sutta and stuff like that. Um, now, I, I said that, and I've kind of outlined it again. It may or may not be attractive to you. Is it? I don't know. When you hear that, I try to say it quite neutrally, but um, is that attractive, that sort of journey, that sort of unfolding, all that that's involved in that? And again, this question, well, why, if it's not attractive, why? What's going on for you? And if it is attractive, what's going on for you? And again, what is it that you want? What do you want? 
So all those questions I threw out in the first part of, of this talk are, are, are very much um, connected. They interweave all the way through this, this question, what is awakening, and this discussion of awakening. Now, actually, trajectory uh, is the word I've been using. It's not quite the right word there because it it it, it um, implies, or it seems to imply, a kind of linearity and movement from here to there along a certain line. And my experience as a teacher is um, things are not always linear, even even um, with that group of insights that I just kind of. Uh, enumerated there very briefly, um, the movement of realization, the movement of opening up of experience and understanding is not always linear. Yes, the sort of latter end of that list uh, that I just ran, ran through, uh, we could say that those are deeper insights. They're generally speaking harder to understand, to uh, open to, to realize, to experience. They're more comprehensive. They take in more. They're more inclusive. Um, so, for example, um, the experience of the unfabricated uh, in a dualistic, in a way that's dualistic with the fabricated and not yet um, uh, move to a level of, of non-duality um, doesn't take in the holiness of the fabricated, doesn't include that. So the latter end of that list, as I said, is more inclusive, more comprehensive, more more fundamental in, in some kind of sense. Yet, uh, my experience... Uh, both for myself and, and, and working as a teacher, is that the intu- intuition, the intuitive wisdom, can make all kinds of leaps um, that at any point in practice, or in one's life of practice, that kind of um, make a bit of a mockery out of any, any linear map um, there. So that trajectory isn't quite the right word. Now, Add in, if you like, or at some point, whether it's right near the beginning of someone's practice uh, along this trajectory of exploring fabrication and ways of looking, or whether they've gone through that whole trajectory and then they start hearing about um, soul-making and the erotic imaginable. But add in at some point, or weave in, perhaps better, weave in to that trajectory or set of insights that I described there, um, weave in, add in the whole paradigm and whole exploration of um, what we're calling the soul-making paradigm or the erotic imaginal, exploration of the erotic imaginal, and which in itself is not linear at all. There's no real linearity. Well, perhaps there's a little bit of linearity, but generally speaking, it moves in a lot of possible different directions there. And it's not really a, so much of a linear movement as I've alluded to earlier. But start to weave that in with the other uh, trajectory regarding fabrication and ways of looking and emptiness and all that. And the whole thing becomes really not so linear. So the trajectory is not necessarily, uh, or at least universal, universally common trajectory doesn't perhaps really, uh, is not really adequate as a label. Um, but this question, what you want, I don't know, with the, with the soul-making side of things and the erotic imaginal side of things, um, perhaps that what you want or the desire operating must be authentic, um, 
because the the eros and the desire is integral to the movement of of soul making it's indispensable it's fundamentally wrapped up in the movement of soul making in the erotic imaginal no um no eros or desire very little um eros and desire means very little soul making so the question of what do you really want the authenticity there is it, it oftentimes in in the soul in the when we can speak kind of more purely of soul making it's it's kind of inevitable there remember too just as a sort of footnote here remember too that um the the paradigm of soul making includes um eros uh with images or in relation to images and also eros without images uh, without the imaginal uh, i've elaborated this in i think it was the eros unfettered talks but so eros without the, the imaginal or without images means that eros for the unfabricated or for uh, um, the realization and the opening to those realms that are less fabricated that have less to do with image and perception in general in that whole in general in that whole spectrum but eventually that movement, that eros for the unfabricated, or eros in the direction of unfabricating along all that uh, spectrum of onenesses, etc., jhanas and all that, um, eventually, with its maturity, as we uh, mentioned, there's the realization of, of the emptiness of um, all things and the non-duality there between uh, what is fabricated and what isn't and different degrees of fabrication. And then this opens up the legitimization, the, the kind of uh, possibility to um, fabricate skillfully and fabricate uh, in a way that includes images. So even the eros, uh, there is eros that doesn't include images, but if I go deeply enough into that, it kind of delivers me uh, a, a legitimization and a platform um, from which to explore um, fabrication with images and then the eros with that and then there's also eros with uh, images the erotic imaginal and that that uh, directly um, involves itself in the participation uh, of uh, fabricated Im- fabricating images and participates in the fabrication of images um, in the, with the erotic imaginal, with eros that is in relation to images. But when we include the soul making, when we, when we include the erotic imaginal, should I say, I should say, when we include sensing with soul, this will open up the whole sense of awakening and 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 the whole sense of the path much wider than that trajectory that I outlined in the last uh, couple of parts of the talk briefly at the beginning. It, sensing with soul opens out the whole sense of what awakening is and can be, and, and the whole sense of the path that opens much wider. And in so doing, it, if you like, in this opening, it will push on um, the influences of however we have um, conceived of or imagined um, the tradition. 
and uh, what the tradition says about awakening or what we have conceived of or imagined the tradition says about awakening. It will push on this soul-making movement, this expansion of the soul-making dynamic will push on the um, unquestioned images that we have of awakening. Uh, the fixated images, the rigid images, the sensing the soul, the erotic imaginal, that aspect of the soul-making dynamic will really push on that. So some of the way this happens is, uh, um, uh, you know, what, what should we say? Um, uh, it, it happens in small ways and in large ways. <clears throat> so for example, um, we might have, and it would be very understandable, I think a lot of people do have, a kind of fixated fantasy or idea. Um, and by fixated fantasy, I mean not one that's rich in soulfulness and eros and, and it's got that kind of rigidity to it and clinging to it. And really, the fixated fantasy or image or idea regarding awakening, that it kind of happens in a sudden moment. So one of the places we get that is from is from the myth of the Buddha who sat up all night, well, made a strong vow, sat up all night in meditation, and just as the morning star was appearing, that was the moment. And everything permanently changed in that moment, at that moment. Done uh, is what had to be done. Done was what had to be done. And there was, in, in, this, uh, in this assumption, this idea, and this image, happens very suddenly, all done, everything is permanently changed, and there is uh, also a, the freedom and the liberation that ensue, that open up, are pervasive. They're total, and they they reach to every part of um, the practitioner's life. Now, that makes a good sc- story, doesn't it? The suddenness of it, and the, and the kind of black and whiteness of it. It's sudden, it's very dramatic. Um, but if you, uh, again, I'd just like to question that. Is it is it uh, a, a true fact or is it a, a kind of myth in the poor sense of the word? Um, oftentimes you, there are many people you, you can meet who, who will share similar accounts, not necessarily with that degree of effort involved, and some, oftentimes they emphasize the, the exact absence of effort. Um, but for myself, and you'll, you'll have to find out for yourself, but sometimes meet these people, listen or read to their accounts, and uh, listen to them or read their accounts, um, look at, um, hang out with, hear about the resultant um, awakenings. And sometimes it's really not that impressive. Um, oftentimes it's not that impressive uh, what happens when there's that kind of story of sudden and then assumed pervasive liberation and deep, etc. The um, awakening often doesn't seem that deep. It's not also that um, pervasive. The insights are not so deep, nor are they pervasive, uh, and nor the freedom. So there's kind of, I, w- I would call that a small way, it's a, it's a small point, um, but there are there are bigger and I think more important uh, ways in which the opening up to the sensing with soul, the imaginal perception, will push on the whole notion and the whole um, image and fantasy of awakening. 
um, and what's involved in it. So uh, this is this is very interesting to me. But I have observed that certain areas or kinds of freedom, if you like, areas or kinds of freedom of liberation may open at different times for a practitioner and not um, by, for example, uh, realization of unfabricated or emptiness or the so-called eradication of greed, aversion and delusion. Certain areas, certain kinds are not going to be opened by those traditional means those traditional um, ideas. So, for example, um, can, can we even talk about sexual freedom? What is that? What is that? What does that mean? What even happens? Uh, what do you notice inside when you just hear that? What does it mean? What is that? So, I, I want to say very clearly right now that um, I do not mean by uh, the notion of sexual freedom, I do not mean... Um, a- acting in any way uh, w- w- that is uh, not respectful of another of another human being, uh, or in any way that is kind, uh, unkind. So that's not sexual freedom. That's whatever that might mean. Sexual free freedom or freeing might be a better way of putting it. Um, it doesn't mean that. Lack of kindness, lack of respect in sexual relations, lack of attunement, you know, gross, grossly misattuned to what's going on there, what the other person uh, wants or needs, or what you want or need. So for both um, oneself and whoever one is um, being sexual with, there, there needs to be kindness, respect, Achievement and it needs to be consensual. These are just like there's no there's no question about this. Whatever sexual freedom or freeing means, it doesn't go against that. It doesn't cross those lines. Um, and whatever you hear me say or have heard me say or or, or perhaps another teacher around exploring eros and sexual images and uh, sexual eros and all that, it never goes never uh, contravenes that in um, uh, in practice. And also, sexual freedom, um, again, whatever it might mean, to me it doesn't mean that um, we necessarily have to open to uh, what someone else or some subgroup considers more free or or better, or what we uh, are feeling pressured uh, by some should or some fashion around sexuality or orientation or self-identification or, or whatever, or uh, morality is like this, no, it's like this, or whatever. You decide if something's not okay for you. You decide if you're um, if it's okay and if it's interested. Not... Uh, pushed around by subcultures and the kind of rhetoric that can um, happen there. Um, so that's just an aside, but I, I, I consider it so so important, just in case there's even the slightest misunderstanding um, in, in what we're saying here. But the point, the main point here uh, that I was trying to convey is um, 
uh, yes, area, certain areas and kinds of freedom may uh, not be opened up through realizing the unfabricated, realizing emptiness, eradicating greed, aversion, delusion. What's that going to do in regard to my um, sexual freedom? Again, whatever that means. I mean, do you really think, is there any evidence, does it seem that the um, spiritual teachers who claim awakening, that uh, their liberation really extends fully to their sexuality? Fully? I mean, they might just choose celibacy and keep to that. That's not quite the same thing as sexual freedom. In the sense of the more open uh, possibility of what that might mean. Or, uh, not just sexuality, what about the area of intellect and ideas? You think that's going to open just because one has realized the unfabricated or the eradication, so-called, of greed, aversion, delusion? What does it mean to be free? What is a freeing in relationship to the intellect and ideas? What is a freeing in relationship to creative expression? What is um, the liberation of personae as masks of God? Um, So, uh, what kinds and what areas and directions of liberation, of opening, of freeing are possible to us and how do they arise? And if I'm locked into too narrow a view of what liberation uh, delivers and also what, what is the path to what liberation, I expect this, this kind of path to bring that kind of liberation. Is that realistic? Um, but it may be, though, that um, imaginal practice and, and, and uh, practice with particular images um, uh, leads to all kinds of very specific liberations um, with regard to whatever that I- image or imaginal figure um, kind of w- what they embody in a certain area. Sometimes you meet people and they're practicing, you know, fairly diligently and kind of steadily over some years. And maybe you've done, you know, some, some therapy and... Uh, found that useful and um, it's an important part of their process and they're practicing trying to deepen their emptiness and their inquiry into fabrication etc but there's areas that none of that has reached not the psychotherapy uh, in in the kind of uh, whatever traditional forms and uh, attitudes and and not the emptiness uh, practice this person very sort of balanced, sane person, um, the, the courage to stand up publicly and stand behind one's deepest convictions and passions has not been liberated. Uh, the courage uh, to do so even at the risk of upsetting someone, of being kind of disadvantaged perhaps in terms of one's um, career or maybe people won't see me as a nice guy or I'll piss someone off or I won't be a good boy or whatever it is. Um, More than the emptiness, more than even 
many kinds of therapy, more than all that. Um, it might be that working imaginally um, uh, in the full way that we've been talked about it, um, images that involve such courage, such expressions, etc., that are really not being opened up through years of, of this kind of steady practice in certain directions. It may be that images involving those kinds of things and they have to be arrived at in, in all the ways we, we talked about and emerge in all the ways we talked about. But it may be that that might open up um, areas and directions of freedom, prisons that don't, don't even really feel like a prison. It's not even really realizing uh, the lack of liberation there. But the imaginal practice may open up uh, those in uh, where, where the other practices won't. So it, it's easy to find, you know, um, a spiritual or certainly a Buddhist basis um, to simply ignore uh, those areas that I alluded to and those kinds of freedoms. Not to be free in those areas with ideas, with sexuality, with creative expression, with the liberation of personae, but to be free rather from sexuality, from desire, from, uh, let's say, active engagement, from intellectual questioning and expansion. Because we can always find a teaching that says sexuality is just greed. Activism is not equanimous and peaceful. It's not undisturbed. It doesn't fit the image, the archetype. I've been into this in different talks uh, previously. And intellectuality, uh, we can always find a kind of rationale that says intellectuality is just conceptualizing. That's just conceptualizing, and we want non-conceptuality, or we want something called just being, or being simple, or, or whatever it is. So there's the possibility, through um, the erotic imagine of opening up... Um, wider areas and different kinds of liberation, awakening, freedom, and um, awakening uh, and liberating um, different, a uh, whole other range, or, or greater range of images and archetypes, of, 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 of breaking the lock of certain fixated images of, or, or a narrow range of archetypes that we might be um, operating unwittingly under. So that's um, part of what's involved in, in this larger, and I, I think richer, richer uh, and more multidimensional kind of possibility of path and vision of awakening. The, the very images of awakening and the areas of awakening open up, can be opened up. Now, Again, we've been, been into it in a lot of detail in other retreats, but we said um, when the soul-making process gets going, the soul-making dynamic, it involves the mutual um, feeding, um, inseminating, widening, deepening, complicating, enriching, stretching of um, eros, psyche, and logos. They, they feed in uh, to each other and kind of... Uh, create and discover more of each other. The whole thing expands. We've explained that um, many times um, over the last few years. Eros, like the soul-making dynamic is liberated. 
In other words, it's, rather than being stuck in one um, particular circumference or range or way of re- relating, the soul-making dynamic, the eros-psyche-logos dynamic is liberated. Eros-psyche-logos are liberated to some extent in that in that soul-making dynamic. That's kind of another way of saying what's going on in soul-making. Eros, psyche, and logos, and and as well as images getting pushed on, as we as we talked about just now, um, the logos ideas will also get pushed on, and um, and more than just get pushed on ideas. As, Logos, as one of the elements of soul-making, is exactly that. It's an element of soul-making. It's involved, it's worked, it's stretched, it's relied on. So that part of the soul-making, what, what a vision of soul-making, uh, awakening and path, must involve logos, must involve concept, must involve idea, as something creative, fertile, active, experimental, so that the exploration... Um, of and the experimenting um, uh, with ideas and with conceptual frameworks, um, different ideas, different conceptual frameworks, exploring them, experimenting them with them in practice, um, so that they inform ways of looking and thus open up different perceptions and experiences, and that feeds the whole process. But that whole um, involvement and inclusion of ideas deliberately and, and conceptual exploration conceptual flexibility is um, in our definition part of the very soul making dynamic part of what is liberated and part of what m- moves in the direction of awakening so we uh, borrow discover create ideas and conceptual frameworks and then in the practice of in the soul making that happens in practice those ideas get stretched or they break and then we forge discover borrow create um, new ideas perhaps built on those old ones perhaps different whatever um, uh, ideas and conceptual frameworks and all of that and that whole process is included in awakening And awakening, notice, is, is a verb form. It's a, it's a um, well, it can be used as a verbal noun, but it's actually also present participle. Awakening, it's, I, it's something that is happening, ongoing. Awakening, this open-endedness that I refer to. Um... So, sometimes, for different reasons, and I've talked about this before, um, there's a real um, kind of uh, shunning of the conceptual, not really um, an inclusion or an embracing or a willingness to play with and experiment with ideas and conceptual frameworks. And that comes from uh, a lot of different um, uh that that hesitation or or a suspicion or refusal comes from a lot of different directions. Um, some of it, um, you know, based on kind of teachings of non-conceptuality, as we as we mentioned just a few moments ago, um, as being kind of more spiritual direction of spirituality or whatever. Other um, other hesitations come more from modern uh, modernist Western philosophy. 
which is really suspicious of um, any kind of metaphysical systems, uh, metaphysics in general, or conceptual frameworks in particular, even just uh, you know building an edifice of concepts or a system or whatever, um, quite popular in the last um, I don't know, let's say hundred years, um, is this is this suspicion of of systems and and uh, conceptual frameworks, and it goes with um, postmodernism. I think at its at its um, uh, less well considered sort of depth. Um, because oftentimes, because people think that if you have a conceptual frame, if you have a system, you must be claiming that as an ultimate truth. You must be claiming that as a kind of all-encompassing final take on what reality is. <clears throat> and um, that's not the way we're, we're uh, using that. That's not the way that this soul-making dynamic engages. Um, it's not the relationship it has with uh, co- concepts, conceptual frameworks, and ideas. Um, so a philosopher called Richard Bernstein um, was writing, and, and he talked about several other philosophers, and one guy called Jürgen Habermas, um, 20th century philosopher, I think he's still alive. Um, and he's talking about some other guys called like Heidegger and Adorno and Derrida, and pointing at these guys and saying um, they... Uh, all these people defend themselves as if, as if they were living in the shadow of the last philosopher. They are still, this is Habermas talking about Derrida and Heidegger and, and Adorno, um, they are still, who are kind of quite, well, adopted by postmodern thinkers, let's put it that way, um, Habermas continues, they are still battling against the strong concepts of theory, truth and system, by which he means what I just said, as if this is the truth. Um, So to say um, X or Y, uh, this is my theory, or this is the conceptual framework, or this is the system, um, a strong uh, uh, concept of that means that one um, pushes it forward as all-encompassing, ultimate um, reflection of reality. They are still battling against the strong concepts of theory, truth, and system that have actually belonged to the past for over a century and a half. They believe that they have to tear philosophy away from the madness of expounding a theory that has the last word. Um, And uh, this guy Bernstein uh, continues, "Their, their failure, according to Habermas, is not to realize and fully appreciate that the fallibilist consciousness of the sciences caught up with philosophy too a long time ago. Meaning, what he means by the fallibilist consciousness, fallibilist means to, to fallible, to make a mistake. So, according to Habermas, you realize philosoph- uh, science has this idea that you sort of tentatively put forward a theory, and if it matches the um, experimental results, great. But you never claim it as a final truth in, in that philosophy of science. And you realize that it's fallible. You can always, someone might do an experiment or some experimental result might show up at any point and ah, that proves your theory is not quite right. Um, so that that's the fallibilist consciousness of the sciences. And according to Habermas, that caught up with philosophy a long time ago. Um, 
So what you get in some strands of philosophy is this idea of all, all they want to do is tear things down, tear down systems, tear down ideas, tear down truth claims, tread, tear down theories, tear down conceptual frameworks, deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct. Um, and Bernstein is making the point, and I would, this is where I would have made the point and would really agree, deconstruction, he writes, is not sufficient. It must be complemented by reconstruction. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Just a, a word more about this business of fallibilist consciousness of the sciences. Um, that reflects uh, another philosopher called Karl Popper, who that was his theory of, of philosophy of science, is that it sort of tentatively puts forward um, a theory which approaches the truth. Theories approach the truth incrementally, and and they get proved wrong, and and but. Uh, and then another theory replaces that, but you're approaching something called the truth. And Habermas, so it's quite a realist philosophy. Um, it says something, well, we, we may not know whether this theory that we have now is completely true, because it can always be proven wrong by some as yet uh, undiscovered experimental result. But there is something called truth, and we can a- approach it. And so there's a kind of realism there, and Habermas is is kind of a, a realist. Um, and that's a different idea, a different notion uh, that's more uh, than, say, a participatory notion of truth, uh, more based on the, the deep notion of emptiness and ways of looking, as, as I talked about. That's just a, a side point. Let's come back to this thing, this business about deconstruction is not sufficient. Any deconstruction we do must be um, eventually followed by reconstruction. Reconstructions. So that's what's happening um, both in the trajectory of emptiness uh, exploration, of, of fa- exploration of fabrication and ways of looking that I outlined. Um, one deconstructs less and less fabrication. One learns how to do that. Um, and eventually, um, having reached the unfabricated, then seeing the emptiness of fabrication, um, because time is empty and what is fabricated is empty and uh, the elements of fabrication is empty, then that opens up this non-duality, as I mentioned, between the unfabricated and the fabricated, and it legitimizes and sacralizes fabrication itself. There's no duality. The unfabricated is not better than the fabricated in any way. It's not more holy, etc., it's not even more real. And so uh, that legitimizes, opens the door, to opens the gate to the possibility of skillful fabrication, and part of um, that can be soul-making fabrication. So in on the trajectory of the deepening exploration of emptiness, fabrication, ways of looking, and also... Um, in the sense, in in the practices of sensing with soul, which include the kind of as a flexible, temporary adoption, entertainment, trying out, playing with, experimenting with, constructing, and then brushing aside or adopting some uh, of conceptual frameworks, then brushing them aside, adopting another one. Um, deconstructing them, reconstructing something different, um, logoi, ideas, conceptual frameworks. So both in the kind of emptiness trajectory and in the sensing with soul um, practices, there's this um, uh, indispensable element that involves 
deconstruction and reconstruction many times and um, endlessly endlessly variable the possibility of endless variations there sometimes what happens just linger with this business about conceptuality because I, I, I think it's so important um, and so um, so subtle in fact as well so uh, sometimes occasionally <coughs> What happens? Uh, I have encountered a student um, occasionally who um, is, is is practicing with emptiness and practicing quite creatively with emptiness and deeply, and sees um, glimpses the non-truth of all concepts, as, as, I, as I said earlier, in different ways. Um, but then after that, um, picks up on uh, teachers, for instance, ancient. Um, or translations of ancient Zen teachers um, from centuries ago who, who, who say seem to be saying, drop concepts, or um, just sit quietly and do nothing, or just be simple, or that kind of thing. And this person who has actually glimpsed um, the non-truth of concepts through practicing with fabrication and ways of looking and um, really contemplating uh, conceptuality and perceptuality doesn't realize... Um, that then tries to adopt this kind of, or or believes that it issues this kind of realization of the non-truth of all concepts, realizes in um, this um, uh, issues in this teaching of of drop concepts, just be simple, just sit quietly, and doesn't realize that is a concept. It's not just a concept; it's also a psychological style. It's one style of soul one kind of archetype. It's the archetype of the simple man, if you like, or the natural man, or whatever. So, to settle or fall back into that without realizing that conceptuality is actually operating and supporting such a stance, and without recognizing the pull of, um, that there's a pull there of an archetypal image or a fantasy, that's, that's not liberation. There's not a liberation when still caught one's seen something deeply, one's still caught, A, in, in subtle conceptuality that's operating there, and B, in, in a kind of predilection or uni, uni, unilinear, unilarity, whatever the word is, singularity, of, um, of, of a certain archetypal image. It's like walking into a prison cell, and just because it's got, um, you know, perhaps uh, centuries ago, uh, an old, now long dead intimate inmate hung hung uh, hung a sign over the door, a long time ago, and it says "Liberation, Nirvana, and Freedom," and you walk into that cell and sit there, shut the door, and and just because of the sign, one one believes it. And actually, one's in a prison, um, both in terms of soul, because of the limited archetype, but also in terms of not realizing the subtle conceptuality that's involved. So, when we talk about the um, kind of the sense of what awakening might be in a soul-making paradigm, um, 
it includes, as I said, this deconstruction, reconstruction, involvement, experimentation, um, fracturing, breaking open, stretching, stretching, forging um, ideas and conceptual frameworks. And so there isn't this stasis to it, and it doesn't um, it doesn't get stuck uh, with a certain co- conceptual range or, or or conceptual idea. Or if it does, that's only that's only temporary because the soul making will keep at some point pushing and uh, breaking whatever vessels, pushing on and breaking whatever vessels. So do you remember? Uh, and I can't now remember which talk it was in the series, but I quoted Carl Jung, and he was talking about um, the scientific revolution around the time of the Renaissance and the Western Enlightenment, and he pointed out, you know, it was um, this new. Um, newly won rational intellectual stability of the human mind that came with the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. Um, It managed to hold on against the kind of older ways of thinking of of, uh, the Middle Ages and medieval thought. And it managed to hold on um, and penetrate further into the depths of nature, um, further even than earlier ages had even considered possible. And then he writes, uh, if you remember, the more successful the penetration and advance of the new science, the new scientific, of the new scientific spirit proved to be, the more successful the penetration and advance of the new scientific spirit proved to be, the more the latter, the more that scientific spirit, as is usually the case with the victor, became the prisoner of the world it had conquered. In other words, that whole um, brilliant um, opening that happened in um, around the time of the scientific revolution and the Western Enlightenment in Europe, that whole brilliant opening, the conceptual framework that crystallized with that, over time, over um, some hundreds of years, um, developed and also became a prison, became hardened. And, and as, as Jung put it, one, the victor, that conceptual framework became was one. It became it won out over the medieval ways of thinking. It was a victor, but then it became the prisoner of the world it conquered. It became the prisoner of its own system. Um, and the soul, the soul making kind of um, paradigm of awakening, um, would, in in a way, if it's working, it wouldn't. Soul making would not allow that. In, inevitably, in in the in the uh, vortex and and the movement and the expansion, the widening and deepening of the eurosychologos dynamic, what soul making involves, um, that that c- cannot happen. As I said, it will uh, will break out of any conceptual framework, break out of any kind of rigidified structure of um, conceptuality, and also. So very easy, easily for us, um, awakening, liberation, nirvana, enlightenment, whatever, can become what um, uh, Henri Corbin calls an idol um, in distinction to an icon. Um, So uh, an idol is something that... uh, is taken 
to be real and has a kind of limit to it. Um, I'm trying to explain what I mean. Um, sometimes, sometimes uh, a couple of people in the past have, have said you're such an iconoclast, Rob. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I am, but. Um, I think what I'm interested in here is more uh, smashing idols, uh, uh, or 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 kind of exposing um, what we might call idols and idolatry, and um, along with that that kind of deconstruction, um, uh, creating icons. So the difference between icon and idol. I'm borrowing this um, distinction from Henri Corbin, I'm pretty sure, and also from. Uh, another French theologian philosopher called Jean-Luc Marion. Um, so the icon possesses infinite depth because because it's imaginal. Uh, so it might be a form there, but remember the elastic soft edges being one aspect of the imaginal? The imaginal form might be really vivid as a sensible form as an aesthetic form, uh, really vivid and sharp, sharply defined, but it, the being of it has soft and elastic edges, and it has um, this capacity through the soul-making, through the erotic um, relationship with it, it will be perceived with more, more and more depth, more and more dimensionality will be perceived as uh, part of it, as an aspect of it. It will open up... Um, uh, a sense of itself having more dimensionality, more depth, more possibility, more divinity. Soul-making is possible in relation to an icon, um, but when soul-making gets hold of an idol, something rigidly, solidly defined and believed in as real, with tight, rigid boundaries, not soft, not elastic, then the soul-making will um, make those boundaries of the idol elastic and soft, or smash it and uh, expand it, or replace it, or whatever, till we have an icon. Soul-making needs icon, not idol. And there won't be an end to that. So an icon is something with this kind of uh, potentially endless um, possibility of dimensionality and divinity and depth soul-making potential. So, in questioning kind of typical ideas of awakening um, that have actually become what, what we could call in that language idols, solid, unmoving, r- rigidly and tightly uh, boundaried, fixed and limited forms and depths um, in, in, do, in, in questioning in that way um, and opening up instead new possible visions or ideas of awakening where awakening is not limited either by an end point or in terms of direction that converts that whole process converts idol into icon soul making has gotten hold of the notion of awakening and creates, discovers its own meanings of what awakening is and involves. It stretches whatever original concept, image, idol we might have started with. 
then, uh, so with an icon, as I said, it's not limited, its being isn't limited in that way because of these soft elastic edges. We will eros in relation, soul in relation to an icon um, uh, discovers, creates more and more dimensions and depths. And in that way, uh, eros doesn't collapse then. It doesn't run out of space, of beyond, to uh, long for, to move into, to create, discover. It has uh, eros in relationship to awakening doesn't collapse, because it has an infinity of possibility in which to move. Infinity of possibility for the expansion of psyche and logos. You understand? title of the talk is What is Awakening? What is Awakening? And we could hear that in in uh, What is Awakening? What is Awakening? As in what awakens or who awakens? If, if we answer it's what awakens? What is awakening? Who awakens? If we answer it's soul. It's soul making that awakens. That is what is awakening. That is, if you like, the subject of awakening. That is who is awakening. It's the soul and soul-making. Then that implies, in in our very definition, that there's this um, infinite um, possibilities that come uh, with the the soul-making dynamic, with the uh, involvement, fertilization, insemination, widening, deepening, expansion, all that of the Eros, Psyche, Logos, of Eros, Psyche, and Logos. And that means, uh, that implies this open-endedness, same thing. Um, important note in relation to that, um, when we say infinite, um, there can be an infinity of possibilities, an infinity of potential, um, and even infinity of actualizations, but um, infinite doesn't mean all possibilities or every possibility. So this doesn't mean that awakening means everything, uh, means every possibility gets uh, actualized, or is even a potential direction. So, for example, um, I mean, if you imagine, if, if that's a hard concept, imagine, um, uh, let's say, a circle which is like the face of a, a clock or a watch, and you could say, um, these directions, um, the 12 o'clock, the 3 o'clock, the 6 o'clock, and the 9 o'clock uh, directions on, on the face of the clock, they are not directions that... Um, soul-making, awakening will pursue. It just won't pursue those directions. That won't happen in, in, in the possibility of soul-making. That still leaves an infinity of other directions just on that circle because you can divide up the, the, the areas that remain, say between the 12 o'clock and the 3 o'clock or the 3 and the 6 and the 6, the 9, the 9, the 12. You can divide up those areas I- infinitely. 
Yeah. So infinite possibilities of direction doesn't mean all and every direction will be viable or uh, uh, is open as a direction of soul-making. Sometimes when uh, this question is, is um, put, what is awakening? And, and one can hear that in uh, two ways. So as, as just kind of alluded to, um, what is awakening? Question mark. The question can be heard uh, with, with, in two ways. What is awakening? Like, what does that concept mean? Um, and we've talked about that a lot and the possibilities there. But as I said, it can be heard in a, in a second way. What is awakening? Um, or what awakens? Or who awakens? Who is awakening? Now, regarding the question when it's heard that way, um, one could give, um, or there are certain answers to, 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 to the question that way that are quite popular in, in kind of, um, I don't know, neo-advaita circles or, or whatever. And the, the answer given is, um, who awakens or what awakens? No one. The answer is no one awakens. Or awakening is awakening. Or the universe is awakening. Um, so answering that question what is awakening or or what awakens answering it in that kind of way um, helps take some of the restriction imprisonment, weight or burden out of a desire for awakening when it's coming out of ego when it's for the sake of ego or self-measurement or in reaction to the inner critic Or it's trying to, this desire for awakening is trying to prove myself or to myself or to the inner critic or to my parent or parents or my teacher or teachers or to the world. We touched on this. Uh, so this, this notion is no one, no one awakens. Um, it, 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 has, it does have a certain unburdening effect, so it can be useful. But there's something about such an answer uh, that um, in in insisting on a kind of um, non-definition or or nebulous, vague kind of openness, um, that kind of answer, those kind of attitudes or conceptions, and and, and there is a, a conception involved there, or conceptions involved. Those kind of stances, they they might be forming their own strange kinds of prison. Um, in that very um, non-definition or vagueness, uh, there's not, why? Because there's not much fertility or movement possible within that view. There's something about the vagueness that doesn't allow me to... Um, to, to actually posit and work with different concepts within that, uh, or, or, or answers to that question, and work with different conceptual um, delineations, etc. Perspectives, concepts, ideas. So, if you contrast this, um, what awakens? Who awakens? No one. Um, no one awakens. Um, 
if you contrast that with, for example, the conceptual framework we're trying to encourage that uh, is a conceptual framework that itself allows, encourages, and actually expects soul in the process to notice, to discover and create ever more delineations, concepts, and perspectives. Uh, create and discover all that in time. Um, uh, regarding what awakening is and regarding who or what is awakening. Do you understand the difference? In, in, in this, in this uh, paradigm, none of those uh, delineations, concepts, perspectives regarding what awakening is or who or what is awakening, who or what awakens, none of them are clung to as truths or reflections of reality. But nevertheless, they can be entertained and, and lived and practiced with. And, and they can bring, therefore, all kinds of fruits and results and openings, none of them being regarded as final. So like we said when we um, talked about what is soul, if I say sensing with soul, okay, well that begs the question, what is soul? Remember that? And we said, we need... We can say something about what soul is, but we want it, again, we want it to have the concept of soul to have these soft, elastic edges. It's not um, a rigidly fixed and limited concept. So it can stretch. What awakens? Soul awakens. Soul making awakens. What does that mean? So there's not the shunning of concepts. No one awakens. Uh, there's the using of concepts to, uh, and then those concepts gets in, get enlarged, broken, new concepts get forged. So sometimes the answers that we give to these questions. Uh, what is awakening, what awakens, who awakens, um, they help in certain ways, but they also limit the possible, possible fertility for, for the being, for the consciousness, for the sense of existence, for the soul. They don't stimulate and support um, the creation and discovery of um, further delineations, further discernments, more and more aspects, facets of um, self, soul, being, others, objects, world, awakening. So again, uh, we are, in, in this soul-making paradigm, we're really not shunning or disregarding um, discriminations, discernments, delineations, and concepts. We're using them for the sake of soul-making. And the soul-making process will actually stimulate more of that as part of its kind of endless possibility of riches. So... Again, this question, what do you want? What do you want? And is that what 
soul wants, or is what comes through and seems to be my desire, is it driven by something else, as we said, ego or measuring up, or is it um, that my what I want is 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 um, culturally influenced or indoctrinated, or I've taken a certain um, idea or fixated image of what the tradition is, or I believe the tradition is is this. Or is it that what I want and the I there is actually quite a limited self-image? Not, uh, I'm not imaginally uh, open. The self is not imaginally sensed in the what I want. What is the relationship of who desires or has eros for awakening? What is the relationship of who desires awakening to who awakens? Again, what is the relationship of who desires awakening to who awakens? And you may uh, have heard answers to that kind of question, um, for instance, in certain so-called non-dual teachings or um, according to sort of um, classical um, Buddhist Abhidhamma psychology or whatever. What would a soul-making answer say to that? What is the relationship of that which desires awakening or, or the one who desires awakening, the relationship of that to the one who awakens. The, the relationship of the desirer of awakening to the awakened. What awakens is what has wanted awakening. What awakens is what has the eros for awakening. So, fantasies, images, and ideas uh, come in, uh, all kinds of fantasies, images, and ideas come in and influence the fantasies, images, ideas we have of awakening. Some of those fantasies, images, and ideas can be what we call fixations, or, or not, or more or less so. And some of them are fantasies and images and ideas of self and also of the world. So so the fantasies, images and ideas of self and of the world condition the fantasies, images, ideas we adopt of awakening. So, I don't know if this has occurred to you, but do you realize that... um, when you, when I choose or accept um, a, a notion or a vision of awakening or enlightenment or, or whatever, that you are or I am in doing so kind of signing up for or plumping for or choosing a worldview, a 
cosmology. It's not just a view of awakening. In choosing a view of awakening, in adopting a certain view of awakening, I'm also choosing and adopting a certain cosmology too. At the same time, they, they go inevitably together. And it may be... So, for example, um, if I have the cosmology of endless rebirth, and then the, the vision or the vision of awakening as ending rebirth um, brings with it, goes with a cosmology of rebirth. And um, the vision of awakening as somehow um, bearing up to, putting up with um, the uh, our existential predicament as sort of um, tragically uh, impermanent and frail um, in in a kind of <clears throat> essentially meaningless cosmos, the image of of the uh, l- liberated one, the awakened one, as one who actually just is willing to confront that and and be with the tragedy of that, open to it, and still live their life creatively, etc. The image of awakening, the idea of awakening, brings with it, goes together with a certain cosmology. And in the soul-making paradise, it's exactly the same. The soul-making awakening um, vision that we're perhaps opening up, or possibilities that we're opening up, goes with um, a certain cosmology, which includes possibilities of cosmopoesis and participation and all that, and divinities and dimensions. And So when we um, choose or adopt uh, an idea or an image of uh, awakening, we're actually also choosing and adopting um, ideas of um, uh, world, self and world. And the causality, who knows what's going on there? So again, the question is why? Um, Is it really the cosmology that I'm attracted to? And I'm just set on that cosmology, and I insist on that cosmology. And... uh, It's working that way round, from the world view to the view of awakening. Or, it, or how much is self-view wrapped up in that? So the choice of cosmology may in fact be the primary reason for you or I choosing or accepting um, a certain notion or vision of awakening. You understand? That may be actually what I long for more, is a certain cosmology a certain worldview. It's all wrapped up together. And the self-view, or the ego-view, and if it's, a, if it's with regarding measurement, or, or, or uh, proving myself, or achieving, or failing, that can come into it, like we've talked about before. Or it might be that there's a certain soul-making, or self-image, in relation to the worldview, cosmos-view, um, cosmology, that's coming in here, that's being uh, chosen. We're choosing a a package. So, for example, bravely and honestly facing up to the uh, tragic existential predicament is one self-image, and it may be soul-making for some people to a certain extent. Or the um, self-image of uh, what a human being is 
human being opens to all kinds of dimensions. Human beings participate in the cosmos, in the divine, in the creation and discovery of all this. It's a, it's a very different um, sense of self and, and image of self, an idea of self. But again, back to this, it's like, why this question, why am I choosing or adopting a certain idea or image of awakening? What, what's involved there? One of the things that's involved is cosmology and self-sense, or you could say anthropology. And I've pointed out in, in this connection, I've pointed out um, several times before um, that the contemporary or, or, or dukkha in the contemporary times excuse me um, may well involve ki- there may be kinds of dukkha um, that are prominent in, in, in what we deal with or have to face um, that weren't there um, at other times so for example our modernist notion of self um, brings with it as much as uh, a lot of possibility it brings with it a certain kind of so I'm not talking about, by modern self, I'm not talking about how busy we all are and uh, how we're harangued by um, mobile phones and emails and text messages and all that. And, uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just the, the modern notion of individuality and, and the culture of individuality and, and the pressures and expectations that brings alongside the possibilities and I'm talking also about our, our very sense of our own psychological complexity and interiority. And also responsibility. So uh, Michel Foucault, one of, one of the things he did was trace, uh, in regard to sexuality, um, how through the tradition of the Catholic confessional, and then later through the very similar and connected tradition of the psychoanalytic confessional, which became the psychotherapeutic confessional, um, that actually there's a, there was a broadening, a stretching of what the individual was then deemed responsible for. So at first, with regard to sexuality in the Catholic confessional, it was just um, around the ethics of that and the more you're responsible for um, good or bad behavior sexually and thoughts and all that. Um, but through that and through the kind of um, uh, uh, pressure of that and the kind of um, minutiae of that that got expanded in that process and then through psych- psychoanalysis and then through the kind of sexual revolution and then the responsibility of sexuality was not just ethical because now we're supposed to there's a kind of responsibility to be um, uh, interesting sexually or like this or like that around our sexuality sexuality has become not for everyone but for a lot of people in some ways part of the identity and it's part of my responsibility for my individuality and what I kind of am or have achieved or am okay with or have liberated or whatever someone in 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 the time of of the buddha's india uh, at the time of the buddha in india didn't have this kind of complexity didn't have that culture of individuality didn't have that kind of that kind of responsibility in regard to their sexuality of being like interesting or or this or that or um individual in that sense 
So there's certain dukkhas around self that, that are kind of that go with uh, contemporary uh, culture, contemporary society, and also certain dukkhas um, around the world. And again, I've mentioned this as well: the disenchantment of the cosmos, the meaningless of the cosmos. That is the kind of um, pervasive backdrop, if not uh, if not foreground, of our worldview. And that I don't know if this is um, it. It's certainly per, uh, characteristic of our modern culture in, in differentiation to earlier cultures in some ways. But if you also think about the the, the whole notion of rebirth um, that that's in the Pali Canon, etc., um, it it's not it's not a in some ways, it's an enchanted cosmos with devas and all that. In some other ways, it's a kind of it's a scary cosmos. It's a um, again essentially meaningless cosmos. It's a meaningless predicament that one has to find one's way out of. One is essentially just flotsam and jetsam on 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 the ocean of cosmic, um, endlessly infinite ocean of cosmic uh, rebirths and deaths. And just tossed this way and that by waves and tides and all that, and it's a kind of scary, uh, scary cosmic picture. Um, nevertheless, there are certain kinds of disenchantment and and meaningless, I think, that plague and pervade um, contemporary society. And along with this, like kind of the the problematic of the complex act, complexity and individuality of the modern self, um, that also um, uh, serves up to us a, a more difficult um, uh, or a different kind of dukkha in relation to self and in relation to cosmos. Now, as I mentioned the other day, um, we're conscious or we're beginning, some people are beginning to be conscious of the moral and environmental implications of uh, perceiving and conceiving the cosmos in a disenchanted way, in a flat way. Especially in the implications, the consequences in a globalized world. And there is a sense, for some people now, that that we need a different view, we need a different worldview, we need the different world um, views offered to us, different picture, different concept of what existence is, um, both for the self and the self in the cosmos and what the cosmos is. So, in in this um, possible idea of what awakening might be in that in a way that includes uh, to include the soul making uh, process and dynamic and movement. Um, such a view, uh, to me, will include more and more facets of our being just because of the way the soul-making dynamic works and I've talked about this uh, a lot elsewhere it will draw in, it will involve it will um, start to uh, relate to um, all these different uh, aspects of our lives and and dimensions and facets of our being it will create and discover such facets of our existence and make them um, objects of 
of eros objects, imaginal uh, objects, and and they get drawn into the whole soul making process. And in so doing, they get drawn in to the awakening process, the movement of awakening. They get included as directions and expansions and unfoldings of, of awakening. And so that's quite, in, and, and that process, it, it will just keep creating and discovering, not always just in, at some kind of uniform rate. There'll be stops and starts and stuck places, and of course. Um, but potentially, at least, that's the movement. It's open-ended and multiple and multidirectional and... Uh, in that way, where some um, ideas we get of awakening, or even what's communicated to us sometimes by people who claim awakening um, in some traditions or some communities, um, certainly that I've come across, um, uh, the awakening can be um, more stagnant, really. Than, than the kind of dynamic and endless and endlessly enriching and um, dividing and uh, like branches growing of a kind of live organism uh, as, as I, I have tried to sort of uh, describe can be a little more stagnant the whole idea so in some traditions and, and sanghas um, and some and some again some traditions some some communities it's um, is relatively common for people to consider themselves awakened, um, but as I say, often there's a kind of stagnation with um, with that awakening, and we can look at that stagnation from the paradigm of the soul-making uh, logos, and we can say either there is not enough eros. So, for example, I'm, awa- I'm a- uh, awakened, and yeah, there's. Definitely a certain amount of happiness, certain amount of freedom and ease of movement, liberation from the inner critic, certain amount of peace, even even keeledness, etc. But it's just it's just kind of stagnated there. I've been awakened for X years, and now what? Until one begins to teach or write a blog or or the whole darshan or whatever it is, but there's not. Something's actually just stagnant. There, there's perhaps not enough eros there to open up further territories and possibilities for consciousness, for questioning, further um, liberations, explorations. So either uh, not enough eros to stimulate and push that whole soul-making dynamic uh, uh, in a way that does open up further territories, and, or, the, the logos is blocked, or stuck in some conception, um, for example, that awakening means this. This is what awakening is, and I now seem to have achieved that. Or, uh, awakening means X, or awakening is this, or, or, I am awakened. And here, it's not so much the I that is the problem, um, some again, kind of non-dual people will be quick to say, that's the problem, it's I am awakened, that's the view, um, that's the problem view. Um, there is no one, there is no I who awakens or is awakened, there is just awakening. But that's not the problem I, wanna, I want to um, pinpoint right now. The problem is in, is in the um, reification and limitation of the vision and idea of awakening. 
of what it is and what it involves and where it goes. So either um, there's not enough eros, or the logos is blocked and stuck in a conception of awakening, in some particular um, uh, narrow conception of awakening, despite the relative ease and happiness and kind of spacious existence. Or logos is stuck in the sense that we're stuck with a conception that conceiving is is bad and, and uh, a bad idea and not spiritual and etc. But either way, whether it's the eros that's kind of uh, there just isn't enough eros. There's no more fire. There's no more uh, fire to the extent that uh, or, or flow of eros to the extent that really pushes things. That continues to push things. Continues to expand. Or um, the Logos is, is blocked in some way or other, um, with regard to awakening. But either way, the, um, the soul-making dynamic, the Eros-Psyche-Logos dynamic, is, is arrested, or at least limited. And, and because of that, no, no more, or no further, or no greater, or wider awakening can open. share <clears throat> one more thing to finish um, in the book of Genesis uh, some of you will know um, uh, God said to Abraham this is a passage from Genesis God said to Abraham leave your country leave your country your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Actually, I, I prefer that old-fashioned translation. don't know if this is King James or something similar, but... Um, <clears throat> and the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. Um, so it's a very, uh, for those of you who know the Old Testament, there's a very sort of um, crucial passage there. And, and the Hebrew is lech uh, lecha, uh, leave, uh, go from here. Lech lecha, go from here. Um, actually, it can also mean go to you, lecha, go to you or go for you. But, but let's just say go from here. We could hear that, go from here. Uh, I mean, obviously you can hear all this in a very kind of histor- historical, literal sense. But, but if we look, what's the, what's the perhaps the, um, the, the, the more poetic meaning here? The soul meaning. Lech lecha. Go, go from here. Go from what? From bondage to liberation. Go from non-awakening to awakening. And again, certain teachings, perhaps certain kind of um, so-called non-dual teachings might say, you're always here, or you're always there. You're always in perfection. There's nowhere to go. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Awakening is just realizing that. There's nowhere to go. And in there in the Genesis says, Lech lecha, go from here. Beautiful... Uh, I love that. <laughs> I'm going to read it again. Uh, get thee out of thy country, 
and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. Um, a soul-making logos might interpret that passage differently in a soul-making way. Go from what? Get thee out of thy country, away from here, away from thy kindred, away from thy father's house. Go from whatever is uh, not soul-making anymore into new, expanded, expanding, deepened, deepening uh, soul lands to the land that I will show you. The landscapes that open up with soul. The land that I will show thee. And pastures, new pastures, new fields of Eros, Psyche, Logos for soul making. And this is always a possibility. This leaving the um, stagnation of, of, of structures that we know of uh, um, beliefs the limited fixated images, the, uh, the, the rigid concepts, beliefs, assumptions. It's always a possibility. Since the, the possibilities for soul making are infinite. So wherever we are, there's, there's the possibility of more at some point. And so it's hearing that passage... Um, God's commandment there in Genesis there it's, um, it's God's calling the call to Abraham God's call to us so we can read it in this very historic literal kind of flattened way and um, uh, and then it becomes all about territory and land and uh, all this business and, and uh, kind of uh, literalized nationalism there coming out of that or you can hear it as some something speaking to you, God's calling, and it's eternal. It's always now. Always now. Lech lecha, go. Go from here. Be ready. Uh, or, or if you say not eternal, perennial. Perennial is maybe a better word. Again and again, um, the soul-making dynamics, as I said, soul-making is not always on the move. It has times of consolidation, of getting used to new structures, new landscapes, new visions, new images, new new sensings. But perennially, again and again, there's this movement, this expansion of the soul-making dynamic. And with that, the whole territory, the whole land that we perceive ourselves in. So again and again, um, uh, forever, whenever, God calls, the divine calls, the Buddha nature, soul, issues a calling to soul. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. The father's house, the, the, the way tradition has, has uh, uh, rigidified. Unto the land that I will show thee. The land that soul opens up. The land that uh, Eros, Psyche Logos open up as the soul-making dynamic calls.
just finish now. Um, you know, some <coughs> um, I said that sometimes people ask me, um, you know, what my position is on what awakening is and what stream entry is and all that, and um, uh, what, do, what do I think about X or Y in terms of some some idea of awakening or whatever. Uh, and I've I've shared a good deal in in, in this talk, but. Um, Actually, uh, I and, and and it kind of follows from from what I've what I've uh, said. Um, my position, or what I think, is that I actually adopt and move between different conceptual frameworks, uh, and that feels to me right now as the most beautiful and viable and, if you like, true. Um, uh, way of orienting and relating to this whole um, question, this whole notion of awakening. And it is possible to do that, to pick up and put down and move between different conceptual frames and move, do that relatively freely or dependent on who I'm actually talking to and what they want or need at a certain time. You could say there's a kind of, or there's the possibility of a kind of, um, you could say freedom from awakening, but I think better a freedom in relationship to um, the whole notion of awakening. A freedom in relationship to the whole notion of awakening. That's a freedom in relationship, not away, not throwing it away. Freedom in relationship to the whole uh, notion of awakening. A freedom in relationship to the whole notion of freedom. Someone can actually know the emptiness of it all and uh, know and play with the, the poetry and the possibility of it all. The notion, idea, sense of awakening can be opened up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.